Okay, so it's recording now. And to explain to this massive audience we have here, because, you know, on a podcast you can't see what's happening in the room, so you might think that there's hardly any people here. You might think there's just one person here currently and one, one coming in later, but you're wrong. There's just loads and loads of invisible, very quiet people in the room. Uh, and this is the Getting Better Acquainted podcast, so welcome to that. It's uh, normally intimate conversations with me and people's uh, living rooms or bedrooms or whatever, so this is actually like t- a lot more more audience than we normally have for this show, uh, live audience, that's, there's actually quite a lot of listeners. There's actually quite a lot of listeners, to, to let you know that before we start, my guest who's not yet spoken. Um, so yes, that's what the show is, and uh, I'm going to start the show with a theme tune, which all of this massive audience will all know, but please don't sing along because, you know, <laughs> it's just this is my moment. No, um, for listeners at home, there is two people in the room. That is what Edinburgh is like, actually, and this is recorded in Edinburgh, so uh, I like to give people an authentic Edinburgh experience, and we're doing that tonight. Right. I want to get better. Please make me better. I want to get better. Better. Yeah, I mean, I've brought this uke all the way to Edinburgh for that. <laughs> like, that's the length of time I'm ever going to be playing the uke while I'm in Edinburgh. So that's an interesting decision. Uh, I'm now going to uh, make a pop for everybody listening at home and in the room. Wow. Just to excite us. In fact, I might take it out up there as well. Um, yeah, so I don't interfere with our conversation. So today we're getting better acquainted with Jenny Pascoe. Hello, Jenny Pascoe. Hello, Dave. Right. So the first question that I ask everybody is, how do you know me? Um, I met you at the Fringe last year, um, just before the first PBH meeting that we have uh, on the day before it starts. Um, and people were having a bit of difficulty finding the venue. Right. So I volunteered to run out and uh, chase up any latecomers, anybody who looked a bit lost. And that's where I met you. Yeah, I was looking lost. You were looking that very lost. That is what I like to do. That's <laughs> kind of how I go through my everyday life. Um, yeah, and if I could remind you to have the microphone a little bit closer, um, that'd be great. Yeah, I mean, that's this is already like more performative than I, I like my shows to be. You know, they're very, very natural. But holding a mic in our hands is going to, we're both performers, so we're used to having mics in our hands, right? We are, yes. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm quite comfortable with a microphone in my hand a lot of the time. Yeah, I'm more comfortable with a mic in my hand than I am without it, actually. Walking down the street without a mic, it's very hard to talk to people. Um, <laughs> but having a mic in my hand, it's okay, because you, you can talk to the room, but they, there's, no, they, there's no expectation socially that they're going to talk back, you know. And when, in fact, when the room does talk back and you're holding a mic, it's not what you want, really, normally. Well, no, <laughs> no especially not with these two. <laughs> Absolutely. So, yeah, so that's how we met. We met at the Edinburgh Festival. And uh, last night you hosted my show, Stand Up Tragedy. And today it's the Getting Better Acquainted sort of specials that we're doing where I talk to my guest hosts. Um, So the second question that I ask everybody, and this is an annoying question for artists big time, is what do you do now? What do I do now? As of... Where am I going after this? Where you can take that question oh. however you like. And over the years of doing this show, people have taken it in all sorts of ways. Sometimes people like to avoid answering the obvious social question of like, that you have at a party? Like, what, what, what do you do for a living? And then that's, that's shit, right? It is, yeah. <laughs> uh, actually, I, I have got a poem uh, called Who Are You? It, 
that is written out of the annoyance of when you try to first meet somebody, that they immediately just tell you what they do for a living. And I don't want to know what they do for a living. I want, you know, I want to know what they actually do with themselves. Yeah, what, who what are their they? hobbies are. What, yeah, exactly. Um, and it's really hard to get people away from that sometimes. But to be honest, what I'm doing and where I'm going is, is quite an accidental thing quite a lot of the time. I just kind of fall into things uh, quite a lot and seem to land on my feet quite a lot, which is excellent. Handy. Very cat-like too. Yes, very cat-like. Um, but I don't tend to make massive plans ahead. Uh, things just, opportunities seem to just come along and uh, I take them. Well, that's a good, um, well, and like, in fact, this very conversation, right? Because Indeed, yeah. I was on Facebook saying I need someone to guest host the first Monday and then do a conversation the next day. And you said me. Yep. And I thought, yes, I like that. I mean, that's very much in the spirit of, of this show. Like, I like the idea of, of, of people sort of dictate, like, this, the show sort of writes itself now. Like, guests do definitely, like, find their way into the show, like, in these strange ways. Um, and this is, I guess, not that strange a way. I mean, we did already know each other on Facebook. But, yeah. And I guess, I mean, so, right, I'm going to put my hat on now. It's a lovely purple hat. Right. It is a lovely purple hat. Now, you have on your head also a purple hat, right? Yes. And we, in fact, we're both clearly into purple. Very much so, yes. Right. I'm quite covered in purple at the moment. And in fact, we've both got uh, yes. purple sparkly shoelaces in our Doc That's Martins. That brilliant. is pretty amazingly surprising. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, so we're practically the same person already. Uh, so there's no point in having a conversation. We know everything there is to know. My no. beard's not as good as yours. Right, that's true. Um, so, yeah, so uh, you like purple. I know that because I see you in purple all the time. I like purple as well. I mean, is there any reason why you like purple or is just purple just the colour you like? Um, I do just generally like it. But I think um, there was a thing about being really awkward when I was young. Um, and when I was a little kid, you know, you used to get those boxes of crayons at primary school to pick from whenever you were doing an art thing. Um, and the purple crayons looked like black ones and everybody avoided the black ones because when you're a little kid, black's a horrible colour. Um, and I would purposely go for them because I was just a bit eccentric and uh, like to be a bit different from everybody else. Right. I think that's kind of what purple sort of symbolises to me. Hello, extra member of the audience. Come in and sit down. Oh, two. That's brilliant. So, yeah. I mean, so purple, obviously, is, is, is also a colour that's sort of connected with, like, queerness and with, like, uh, like gay, gay LGBTQIA pride. Um, and so that's kind of another thing that attracted me to, to purple. For me, purple was, like, when I was a kid, my favourite colour was violet, right? And that's obviously stops being socially acceptable if you're a man. And uh, <laughs> it sort of like became a kind of complicated thing. And I sort of didn't admit that that was my favorite color for years. And now I'm like, right, fuck gender like stereotypes <laughs> out the window. And now I like go for like purple all the time. It's all I'll ever wear if I can, if I can, if I can have some say in it anyway. Uh, partly because I think it, it actually makes me look good, which is a hard thing to do. So I'm quite, quite pleased to have found purple. You look good in purple. Thank you. <laughs> So do you. Um, and so, yeah, so purple hats is one thing I see uh, of, of, you, of you walking down the street. I mean, hats is another thing that you do and I do, right? Yeah, loads of hats, absolutely loads of hats. Yeah, I mean, when I was at school, like the first time I was at school before I moved to a really terrible situation at school, I was kind of known as Hat Boy for like, and then, you know, so that was a, one of the better nicknames I had in my teenage years, I have to say. And when I went to university, that was, the, again, it was Hat Boy uh, was what was said about me, generally speaking. Um, so yeah, it became synonymous. But then I ha I've had years in the hat wilderness uh, and I've only recently come back to wearing hats. 
hats again because headphones get in the way of hats. You know? They do, yeah. Especially I when mean, they're that size. And I was quite, um, I was getting on a bit when I started wearing hats. I didn't really wear hats when I was a kid. Um, so I was probably in my early 20s. Um, and my hair was just crap. I mean, it's still crap. I, I just have really useless hair that doesn't know what it's doing. Um, and so I started wearing baseball caps originally. Um, and then I discovered that I really loved trilbies. And I didn't think hats would suit me at all. And I tried on a trilby, fell in love with it, and now have absolutely loads of those and these flat caps and uh, yeah. any kind of hat now. It's, yes, it must be mine. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I was, I was the same for quite a few years, although the one I'm wearing at the moment is a purple fedora. Um, and uh, I used to wear fedoras a lot growing up and uh, it was like my symbol of like being different, a, a little bit like yeah. you're saying, right? Um, and then of recent times, the fedora has become very different in terms of cultural symbolism. It's become associated with sexist men. Um, so then I sort of like, I felt like a bit bad uh, that I was wearing those fedoras all my life. But this is again, because my show this year is about sexist men to a certain extent uh, and my experiences growing up. I thought now's the time to get a fedora, but I'm going to get the purple fedora so I can be a little bit less like those men. Um, not that, you know, I'm saying that everyone who wears a fedora is sexist. That <laughs> is not the case. Um, but yeah, it's become a kind of cliche that they are. You know, and all cliches are good and bad. Like they, the cliches, they, they speak to something true, but they also yeah. completely reduce life into bollocks. See, so. I didn't even know that about the fedora. No, well, you know, it's it's not even. Yeah, that's the thing. If you if you deal with like gender and stuff, there's very specific like internet areas, and I don't think much of the public bother going there. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. You know, it's, it's like it's like you know it's like a I I know the secret to, uh, the, the secret words of feminism, but nobody really gives a shit <laughs> when you walk out in the everyday life. Um. So yeah, the thing that you do generally. As far as I know, the thing I know you for, anyway, is spoken word, right? Yeah. So when did spoken word come into your life? Um, when I was young, uh, when I was about eight years old, uh, I went to see a theatre show. And I was given the choice. My mum said to me, do you want to go to stage school or do you want piano lessons? Um, so I went to stage school. I started doing dance, uh, a little bit of drama. I actually hated drama. I really wasn't comfortable with drama at all. I was a really, really painfully shy child. Right. Um, and was comfortable, like, dancing at the back of the crowd sort of thing. Uh, never wanted any solo stuff. But at home, I would put on shows in the living room. I would make posters and tickets. And wow. I would make do variety shows when I was a child for my family and friends. Was it just you or did you have a whole lineup? It was just me and unless my cousins were coming to visit. My cousins came from Nottingham once a year. Um, and every time they were there, we'd write a play together. Wow. Um, and we'd make a little variety show. And, and do that for everyone. Uh, so I always liked performing, but I didn't really know what it was that I did, and I didn't really want the limelight as such. I just liked that whole stage thing. Um, and I loved English. I always loved English language. And I was really lucky that I had uh, two amazing English teachers at school, and they really, really developed that. Um, but I still didn't know what I did. So, you know, I started running pub quizzes and I would do karaoke and anything to have a microphone in my hand, right. basically. Um, and then five years, well, six years ago now, uh, there's a night in Newcastle at the time just started up uh, called Pink Lane Poetry and Performance. And uh, Jess Johnson who was one of the guests at uh, Tragic Jabba last night. Yeah. You could hear them on the Stand Up Tragedy podcast. Hey. Uh, she set that up with Robbie Lee Hurst. Uh, 
And it was the first time I'd ever been to such a thing in my life. I didn't know that performance poetry was a thing. I didn't know it existed. Um, I was, wow, this puts together my two loves. This is what I'm going to do. So I went home, started furiously scribbling some poems uh, a couple of months later. Had my first set, um, won a slam a couple of months after that, um, and started Jibber Jabber a couple of months after that. Right. I mean, I think it's like you, you, with performers, if, you, if your first gig went, went well, you're yeah. kind of cursed because you, you, you know it can go good and you chase that forever. Yep. And it's so hard to get that good, good gig to come back. But yeah, it's, it's worth it when it does come back, right? It is, yeah. So, I mean, Jibber Jabber is a, a spoken word night that you run mm -hmm. uh, in Newcastle, right? Yep. And, uh, and so. What's it? I mean, so like, how it's as far as I understand it, like jibber jabber. And I'm pl I'm performing there tonight <laughs> later on, so it's it would be good for me to work it out fully. It's like it's it's everybody can just stand up and get up and just speak, right? It's a kind of yeah. open forum. Yeah, we have uh, in Newcastle. We have four feature guests every month. Um, at the Fringe, we're having three, obviously, because yeah. it's a lot shorter Less show. Um, but what we usually have is we'll open the night with a musician. And then we'll have the quick fire open mic. So basically, um, I explain how it works to the crowd. If you're a writer, a performer of any sort whatsoever, or you're just in the audience and you've got something interesting or entertaining you want to say. Um, there was a lad got up one night and just said, look, I've got an allotment and I've got too many potatoes. If anybody wants any potatoes, <laughs> see me before you go. Um, so loads of random stuff's happened there. Um, there's been some impromptu duets by two people running up to the mic together and just staying on the stage together and wow. saying something out, which is brilliant. Um, so after that bit, uh, we have our first guest poet, and that's usually a local person who's just emerging on the scene, and you know they've got enough together off their open mics to start doing full sets. Um, and then we have a comedian. We always have a comedian on, um, and it's worked really well that Newcastle now, a lot of the comedians seem to be really comfortable with the poets and vice versa, nice. and socially. Um, like like John in the audience there, who does improv and stand-up, um, we, we've mingled a lot more and, and broken down those two separate communities, right. which is really cool. Um, so after that happens, we do more of that open mic for all the shy people who didn't get up in the first bit or wish they had, um, or the greedy people who uh, just want a bit more of the spotlight, you know? Yeah. Um, and then we have our headliner. And our headliner usually comes from elsewhere in the country. Um, and thankfully, uh, Apples and Snakes, I'm sure you're yep. aware of. Uh, Excellent you know, organisation, yep. supporting spoken word all across the country. Yeah, um, they very nicely pay for our headliner. That's um, excellent. So, yeah, I know. <laughs> I couldn't believe it when I got that offer. So, I like basically, uh, yeah, we'll pay for the performer you want to come from anywhere in the country and put them up in the bed and breakfast in the pub where we have it. Um, and pay them a fee for it as well so i don't have any of that worry and i've got my wish list yeah i mean so i mean you basically started like doing spoken word like and running a night like at the same time right pretty, yeah, much. pretty much yeah I mean, that's a very, like, in it's an interesting approach. It's basically a kind of, I guess it's kind of like what you were saying earlier on, like, just like a dive straight in, like, take yeah. the opportunity and go with it. I mean, like, 
it, it, but it's but it's an unusual way of going into that, right? Like normally when someone starts up a night, they've been in whatever that scene is for quite a few years before. I mean, what's mm. it? What was it like, sort of doing that, diving in, not knowing what the hell you were doing? I didn't really think about it too much, to be honest. I was just I was just doing it, you know. Um, basically, what the scene was in Newcastle at the time was there's only a couple of nights and they were both feature set nights, so you had to have 10 minutes to do it. Um, so we were really lacking a lo open mic. There was no open mic at all. Um, and noticed the need for that straight away, especially as somebody who was going to start writing new right. stuff. So that we need an open mic. I'm going to make one happen. Um, and it, there was about 10 people at the first one, and it gradually grew and grew and grew. Yeah. Um, and, and established itself. So I don't know, it sort of became my baby, really. Right. Um, I d and then I've never really thought about, you know, if it was too soon. No, or well, I don't think it is too soon. I don't believe in the idea yeah. of too soon. I think there's, a, there's so many different routes. And I think learning uh, in public is kind of what I've done with podcasting to a certain extent. I've got much better as a podcaster, as a conversational person, whatever. Um, as as I've like done it in public, everyone saw my shit ones, uh, yeah. and that's cool. Like <laughs> I don't mind that. I don't mind the idea of leaving this digital footprint in my case um, there for people to look back and go, oh yeah, he's got better. Because I think that's a great thing to see, right? If you're mm -hmm. a performer coming up, like oh shit, like they started shit and they got good. Like we yeah. all want to know that because like when you see performers, you just think they're like they're like born that way. They like come <laughs> like 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 that, and they haven't had to craft it because they th because they they've got their skills right. Um, so it's it, I think it's really valuable growing up, if you like, in public. Yeah. But I mean, the, also the other thing it seems to me that you're like about what you do is you're really committed to the idea of an open mic. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's that's something that resonates quite a lot with me. I run a kind of true storytelling open mic where people stand up and talk about their lives, right, for five minutes. Um, and, you know, just, and that's an, an amazing thing. Um, but the difference, I guess, between a true storytelling open mic and uh, a, a spoken word open mic or a comedy open mic is that I think like when everyone talks about their lives they're amazingly engaging um, but what I always worry about with an open mic or a mu music open mic is another good example of this is that you're going to go and there's going to be some great ones and some people you'd never see and so that, that's amazing moments but then there's gonna also going to be a lot of harder to that people who are still working on their craft oh definitely you and get that all the time right yeah. and, 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 and there's, there's a joy that can be had in that experience I guess that you seem to really find in, in this idea of it you don't know what's going to happen next it's chaotic it's it's mayhem but that's kind of like part of the the joy of it right oh definitely yeah I mean I, I like that you get complete beginners um in the same show as people who are already kind of at the next level as it were right. and then you've got the professional touring poets on the same bill as well so everybody's seeing where each other's at and what each other's doing. And the people who are just starting kind of see something to aspire to there. And, you know, they see that, you know, there is a future in it. Yeah. Um, and you can really be successful at it if you kind of keep going. Yeah. Um, also, you find as well, people up their game a bit when somebody's come, you know, big names come from somewhere else. The open micers kind of want to impress them as right. well. So they do kind of up their game. Yeah. And I guess, I mean, like... Yeah, it's it is it's it. I mean, how do you control an open uh, an open mic for you? Like, cause I I mean I, I know how we do it. Like, I've got like a five minute rule and all of that stuff. But I mean, it, it's more or ordered. I feel like what I do. I, I mean, how do you kind of how do you control that chaos? There's very <laughs> little control to jibber jabber, <laughs> but <laughs> um, it seldom needs it. Right. To be honest, um, 
Basically, everybody is told if you're doing a poem, you only do one, no matter how long or short it is. If you're doing comedy or storytelling or anything else, you've got up to three minutes. Now, I don't actually time that three minutes, and I probably shouldn't say this publicly <laughs> online, uh -oh. but I never actually time that. Basically, there's just a feeling. It's like a code of honor. If somebody's overrun, there's a feeling, right. and the audience know the score, so they start to get a bit restless with it. This, this, this unwritten, yeah. the, the person, 90 99% of the time just kind of knows when it's time to get off. Um, I think twice I've had to say, like, come on, pass the mic on, um, but only twice in five years. And so, and Jibber Jabber, like, as I said earlier on, and, and people may, may, may have noticed from your voice as well, like happens, well, in your voice is not necessarily a Newcastle <laughs> accent, so that, that's a bit misleading, but uh, it happens in Newcastle, right? So yeah. it's a northeast kind of night, and, it's, and the majority of people in that open mic are people from the northeast, yeah. which is great. And one of the things I liked about having you guest my show last night, as I was saying to you earlier on, is it's just great to be completely un-London centric for an episode, like to have mm -hmm. every voice be a northeast voice and I've lived in the north not not as far north although my brother lives in Newcastle um, but um, but I've li I went to uni in Lancaster and I I, I uh, lived in Cardiff in the Midlands and all sorts of places growing up so for me this country is much more than London but living in London for, for the people in London wherever they've come from it's almost London is everything yeah uh, and I understand yeah. why that is because London is a big fucking city and everything's crazy and of course it just takes over your mind and it becomes like you know it's just it just gets into your into your bones but I mean I imagine Newcastle gets into your bones in a very oh, different way. Oh, it really, right? really does, yeah. I mean, it's definitely home. Yeah. Um, and it, it's one of those places that it does feel like a home. It, you know, there's such a community. Um, you know, the, there is a cliche, going back to cliches, that Newcastle is a really friendly place. But it's just true. It really is. Um, but we've also uh, recently started running Jibber Jabber in Sunderland as yeah, well. Yeah, which um, is exciting. And a tiny version in a cafe in Whitley Bay called Jibber Ish. Uh, <laughs> I like my puns. I do like puns. But uh, the Sunderland one, I always wanted to do from when I started the Newcastle one because I'm actually from Sunderland originally. Right. And it's got next to now there, basically. Uh, it's got one of the poetry night, but that's just recently started as well. And before that, there's loads of talented people there and nothing going on. Right. So it's like get in there, sort something out. Well, that's the thing. I mean, like... So, I mean, Newcastle is is got lots of things going on in it because it's kind of, I guess, partly because of the whole city of culture stuff that happened. I don't know yeah. if that's had an effect. We didn't get it, by the way. <laughs> but, you know, you got the Angel of the North out of it, right? That's true. And yeah, that yeah. is that is bloody brilliant. I love yeah. that. Um, but but. But I mean, I guess so it, because it's like a bigger city, things are going on. I mean, I know probably less things in some places and that's kind of great for you because you're becoming part of the stuff that's happening, yeah. right? Which is exciting. Um, but as you're saying, like Whitney Bay or like uh, or Sunderland, there's less stuff going on. And I think that's so important to have like the arts happening in those places, like having people have a route to express themselves, yeah. you know? Um, I mean, how is like? Do you, uh, how do? What do you think about that whole thing? You know, the whole like the arts being in London and 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 other places finding it harder to get funding and stuff. Although that's in a way that's not exactly true. I, if if you're in London, in a way, because there's so much in London, y it's harder to get the arts council funding than it is if you're in you know. Well, yeah, there's more people else, to fight right? for it right, in London. Right, 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 absolutely. Um, I think to an extent, to be honest, the the way things are London centric there, and you know that. No, I'm not. I'm not going to say. 
what I was going to say because that would come out incorrectly. I don't <laughs> mean to say that people don't notice what's going on outside of London, but sometimes, you know, they're just so busy getting on with that. They're, they're, they're not thinking about what's happening in Newcastle right. or what's going on anywhere else, you know. That's definitely true. they're in London. Um, and I think the same thing applies in Newcastle. Right. We don't notice London's going on either. Well, that's so good for London's ego. They should yeah, hear that. Yeah, we really <laughs> don't. You know, we're in our own little northern, what's the northern art scene? Yeah. Um, so, you know, Newcastle and Edinburgh and Manchester and uh, York. Right. Um, and we very rarely notice anything going on in London. Um, Good. I'm, well, I'm speaking for myself, but I'm assuming that that's the case for a lot of people. Yeah. I mean, uh, although I guess you're getting these headline acts from all over the country, which is, a, but that's good in itself. Like, it's good to, it's good, it's good for us to listen to each other, but it's also yeah. good for us to be able to express ourselves. And I think that there's so many cities in this country that don't, and towns particularly, and villages even more, that don't have any outlet for like kids that, or, or adults that want to express themselves. Yeah, it's interesting to me as well what you were saying earlier on about how you started it all. Like, basically, you did jibber jabber as a child in your in your front room, right? Yeah, to your yeah. family, <laughs> and then like now you've come back to it as an adult right you've gone back to what you love to do as a child yeah um and w when i was listening back to the show you did last night i was really interested in you set up a poem about uh, not wanting to to have children but mm -hmm. and and uh, one of the lines in that poem was like i don't want to have children because i take all their toys and play with them oh right? definitely yeah i yeah. totally would yeah and <laughs> it seems to me like you, you're very much like kind of like you've you've got a connection to ch to being childish right you think that, that oh yeah um i'm still that little girl in my living room putting on shows for my family. I just uh, sometimes get bigger audiences now. Yeah. Um, and uh, I've grown a bit physically, right. but that's it. I mean, um, that's I mean, the indifference. How do you feel about the idea of adulthood? I'm not, I'm not down with uh, it. I, I, I don't want it. I honestly <laughs> don't believe it exists. Right. I think some people are just better at pretending to be an adult than others, and nobody really knows what they're meant to be doing, and everybody just pretends that they think they do, uh, so they kind of go along with that. Um, and I avoid it as much as possible, basically. I just like being silly. Right, which is, and that's one of the, because I, I, I really liked the fact that you're kind of publicly uh, in a position of not wanting to have children, right? Because mm -hmm. I'm in that position. I publicly don't want to have children. Um, the story of my vasectomy is out online, so uh, it, it's not even a possibility now. Like yeah. When I get into those, you know, you'll have had those conversations, oh, right? Yeah. When people yes. get into those conversations with me, I can stop them because I can say, well, I can't, I, I physically can't. So if you persuade me to have children, you're just going to make me depressed for the rest of my life. <laughs> you're not actually, actually going to change anything. Um, and yeah, I mean, how, like, so you decided when you were nine, right? Again, as a I, child. I, I was eight years oh, old eight, and there I you decided go. that I was never having children. Um, at that point, I did say I might adopt. Right. When I was eight years old, I said, I'm never having children, but I might adopt one day. Yeah, I said the same. Yeah. I've, I've said the same thing in my life. Yeah. I mean, d it, like, what? so what are your reasons for not wanting to have kids, if you don't mind me asking? Well, I, I <laughs> covered several in the poem last night. They right. you can hear on the podcast. They can, but um, I mean, it's... it's uh, uh, but... Yeah, um, basically, because of the way I do live, because I don't really plan very far ahead, um, because I like to be able to jump at every opportunity going, you know, I, I, I would just see them as a bit of a tie. Right. <laughs> uh, you know, a bit of a trap. Like, I wouldn't own my own house either because I don't want to be kind of trapped to something. Um, and 18 years is a bloody long time to be trapped to another human, you know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Especially Longer than that, you know. You still have to speak to them after eighteen. Oh, you don't. It's fine. <laughs> um, but uh, but you know, some 
and the human who just constantly wants things from you. you. You know what it actually is? Do you know why I really don't want children? Because I would want to be them. Right. I would be really jealous of my child <laughs> because they what they would have the life that I wanted to have. Right. Um, and I don't think I could deal with that. I, because if I had a child, that would make me have to be an adult. Right. And that's I think that's the key thing right, about not wanting them. That makes sense. Yeah. I mean, it, but it's quite a, a tricky thing. Like, so my partner also doesn't want to have children and it's she gets a lot more grief about it obviously because you know everybody thinks women definitely are going to change their mind yeah right? get whereas, that a lot whereas with with men it's more like are you a deviant <laughs> <laughs> uh whereas like, you know it's a very different kind of setup i mean like how d how does that work for you do you do, do, uh, do you feel like good about the fact that you're sort of like out and like saying that, that is that one of the reasons that you made the poem to say like this is this is how who i am like take it yeah, or leave it right but and um, I, I don't, I really don't get why there is that expectation of, of women, you know, like, yeah. like we're doing something wrong. I mean, people have looked at me like I've just punched a kitten in the face when right. I've told them that I don't want children. I think they feel like, like you're saying that because we don't want to have children, it means that they're wrong for having children. Oh I think yeah. they often feel that, right? I've got nothing against anybody else. Well, some of them are little shits, but you know, <laughs> the, the uh, yeah, I like children. I don't dislike them, uh, you know, and I'll babysit for friends occasionally and, you know, hang out with their kids at the park and that sort of thing. I've got nothing really against them as long as I'm in a situation where I'm allowed to be a child with them right? rather than the responsible adult. Yeah, I like children in that way too. Yeah. I like playing with kids, but it's like, the, yeah, being be responsible for Be careful how you them. say that, Dave. Yeah, well, <laughs> I worked with children. I worked with children for years, and so that's what I meant. But yeah, you're right. You do have to be careful how you s how you <laughs> phrase things about children if you're a man. But you don't have to really worry about that if you're a woman so much. There are no, these kind of different codes weird, to the whole it? thing. You know, if you, say, if you were to say, I like playing with children, everyone would go like, that's great, because she's supposed to like playing with children because she's a woman but if I say it oh no it's deviant behaviour like I say so I'm very <laughs> tempted the next time somebody says to me oh uh, your life will be so much more complete when you have children you don't right. you don't realise what you're missing I'll go yeah and so will yours when you get rid of yours <laughs> and see how they react to that you yeah know, I mean it's, it's definitely a thing that's it, it provokes you to be provocative because everybody's so judgmental about mm -hmm. it, right? I definitely find that myself. I mean, when me and Steve, uh, my partner, got together, we'd been hanging out as friends for a couple of weeks, um, and we had this conversation that, uh, so, uh, you know, are we a couple now then? Are we, are we going out? Because it kind of slowly went from friendship into this thing. Um, and he said, Oh, do you want to? Yeah, I was like, yeah, I think we should. Okay then, but it went, wait, I definitely don't want children. I was like, oh, it's fine, neither do I. And he's like, no, I really, really never want children. It's like, that's fine, Steve, would you like my phone number? <laughs> so we had all of that out of the way before we'd even started, before we'd kissed, before we'd gone on a wow. date or anything. Before you'd kissed, you decided yeah. that you were never having children. Yeah. How romantic. <laughs> You've got to get these things out of the way. I think it is romantic. I genuinely do. I mean, when I'm saying that, I mean, like, that's perfect to me like I think mm. like all the people who don't want to have children should obviously partner up like it's very handy that me and my partner don't yeah. want to have kids because <laughs> otherwise it would be awkward you know and and, and it's like with all of these things like if, if everyone can just if all of the people like if all the people who like being voyeurs can find people who like being like looked at right yeah. it's just like let's let's just find the right pairings for people like it doesn't <laughs> work if, if everyone's like the wrong pairings uh, and it, we should have these conversations before we start because it's so often like 10 years into a relationship people discover 
these incompatibilities, right? Yeah. That's a, that's a good that's I a know good call. I genuinely know people who have left relationships of five or six years because they've realised at that point that they want different things when it comes to children. Absolutely. Like, oh. Well, that's the other thing, you know, would you bring? Would you want to bring up the kids the same as your partner? That's the other well, thing. Yeah. Like, whoa, there's so many complicated discussions that we're both opting out of, <laughs> uh, which is great because, you know, uh, those are hard, hard, hard choices. There's enough hard, hard choices in life without having more, I think. Definitely. I think actually Steve probably doesn't want them for the same reason as me as well, because he's 45 and he still has a long board, you know, like the long skateboards, <laughs> um, and goes out on his trials bike, jumping over rocks in the quarry on his uh, push bike and that. So yeah, yeah, I think it's definitely the same reason. I mean, you do seem you do seem made for each other yeah. by this description, <laughs> description, which is amazing. Um, so yeah, I mean, like I guess the the the, the question that people always ask like to people who don't want to have children who, who are women like if they don't know the answer is how old are you which is always an awkward question okay. to ask a woman but I'm going to go it's for that fine now. I don't mind um, I'm 35 right. and I'm 36 next week next Wednesday oh well yes. happy birthday next week I'll actually probably see you and re- try and remember to say it uh, but Facebook will remind me if I don't I'm remember sure that's will. the thing yes. you don't have to actually remember your friendships now <laughs> it's all you're, you're told about it um, yeah so I guess that's the thing like so I guess you're about around about the point where people stop asking so much like try saying you'll change your mind so much like my partner mm. she's 33 so she's she's already she's she's got a seven years for everyone to pressurize her or whatever yeah. but it, but it, people start like it, when you, once you reach your 30s and you don't want to have kids people start believing you i think that's the thing yeah you do get that quite a lot yeah um the, the way it turns now is uh, oh come on you haven't got much time left Right. Sort of attitude right, right, right. instead. Yeah, the, the, this biological clock that mm. people talk about, which, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm sure there's some truth in it. And it's, it is true that people change their minds. It is true that, that, yeah. that lots of people, you know, when they're 18, don't want to have kids. Surprisingly enough, there's other fun things to do, but they change <laughs> their minds later on. Um, but I reckon it's like when you've decided at nine or you've decided very early on, like I, I, I think I did. Although, I don't know, I've sort of, I think I've meandered around for a few years. And then when I finally understood, who I was then I knew I didn't want to yeah. have kids um, for definite like for sure all the chips on the uh, vasectomy board <laughs> um, so yeah and and I guess like so y- yeah so you're like you're definitely like enjoying still being childlike if yeah, you like yeah. uh, you know getting on towards 40 which is as my dad who my dad's uh, 92 I think or something like wow. this uh, he always says like f- he always says oh 30s nothing these days the days like 40s the new 30 so I have, we have to apparently uh, add on 10 years anyway like so we shouldn't be insecure at all at this stage according to my dad and he's lived a long time so maybe we should listen to him right I think he probably knows what he's talking right, exactly. about exactly yeah um so yeah and so so it's but it's a it's again it's like a it's an unusual thing to be wearing purple hats in our 30s right to be looking like like to be looking um like so when we were teenagers i guess we probably both dressed a bit differently from everyone else yeah right? yeah and that was kind of r- reasonable to a certain extent people expect teenagers to try and be different yeah people don't expect that when people are in their 30s right but they give you less hassle about it i got a lot more hassle at school when i wore hats than i get as a 33 well, year old man you're supposed to conform with uh, you know all the fashions when you're at school aren't you right. you know for this month we all have to have those trainers and we all have to have this tracksuit top or whatever when you're at school you know um otherwise you don't fit in and not fitting in can be seen as a terrible tragedy at school Indeed. you know um 
but I didn't mind not fitting in because I thought most of them were wankers. <laughs> so I, I only had a few female friends at school. There was right. only like a couple of us. Um, but all the blokes loved me. All right. the lads I got on really well with. Um, and, you know, I'd play footy and marbles and all that and just hang out with the lads. They were great. Um, didn't have a problem at all. But all the girls were, to be a girl, you must be this. Yeah. And if you're not this, you're not in our gang sort of thing. And I had no interest in it right. whatsoever. Yeah, I mean, I... I, 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 I it was easy for me to dress differently because they'd already decided I was different before I decided to start doing well, it. Well, yeah, same so one, here. Once same they'd here, gone yeah. with that, once they decided I was a weirdo, I could dress like a weirdo to my heart's content yeah. and it wouldn't <laughs> increase the bullying. But, I mean, like, it's it's interesting that you say that because, I mean, at school, I had a, I generally had a better track record with... I had some some close male friends, mm -hmm. but generally I had a better track track record with women because they yeah. were girls, in fact, they would have been then. And I think that's because, like... Uh, the people of the same gender as you, they police that gender much more rigidly. Yeah. So like the bo the me the boys at, at school didn't like the fact that I wasn't a proper boy and so mm. b bullied me for it. Whereas the girls did bully me a bit because I had a quite an extreme bullying experience. But it was they they bullied me less so. And my act and girls were definitely the ones who started being nice to me and accepting me in. Although that's complicated when you're full of hormones and you like yeah. what then you then you want them to fancy you and they don't <laughs> and that's complicated. Right? I, I imagine that's also the case for for, for girls who are friends with lots of boys. Yeah, right? you're automatically in the friend zone and right. then nobody sees you like that right. after that. And the yeah. thing about the friend zone is that it's a complicated one because you shouldn't you shouldn't expect people to to want you mm. right you should be we should be okay with just the friendship shouldn't yeah. we but i think that when you're a teenager and and even probably past that knowing what you should feel is not the same as being able to feel it if you really no. want someone you know that's that's the thing i mean i think that yeah and i and i i, I do think the friendship uh, the friendship the friend zone exists for both genders as well like yeah. like uh, a lot of people use that term in an annoying way. There's a lot of men who use that term in an annoying way. So I don't like to like sign off completely on the f on the term, but I think it is a universal experience of like you, and it's just it's just sadder once you if you if yeah. you still fret like if you don't get bitter and twisted about it like a lot of men do, it's sadder really because then you're not bitter and twisted. You're just like with someone who doesn't want you, but you uh, you don't hate them. See, for I like it. to see so it as sort of more of a brother sister relationship, right? Um, and I think that's what grows, and right. because it's grown like that, then any feeling that you had kind of dissipates because if you start seeing somebody like a brother obviously you're not going to fancy them anymore because that would just be weird yeah uh so once that sort of grows i think the initial attraction just lessens and it kind of becomes all right right so listeners who are feeling in the friend zone just pretend they're your sister or brother <laughs> and uh, you'll feel much better about it or worse about yourself <laughs> yeah. actually you'll probably feel really bad about yourself <laughs> if you decide that they're your sister or brother uh yeah so i mean like i guess like the, the one thing I often have conversations with about on my podcast, so I'm not just picking you out for this, okay. is I have conversations with people about class quite often because I think it's something we don't really talk about very much. Yeah. And we don't talk about it in a nuanced way. Like, I'm definitely middle class, for example. Yeah. Right? My mum was a social worker. My dad was a documentary filmmaker. But the fact that my mum was a social worker and, a and, a, and my dad was a documentary filmmaker means I'm a different kind of middle class than a lot of middle class. Like, mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? And yeah, there yeah. were times when we were a bit harder up than others, so I, I can understand that a bit more. And all of my friends were working class. Like I had mm -hmm. a, 
the, the only people who didn't bully me, as well as the main people who bullied me, were working class. Like so, um, and so because of those things, like I have like a very like, and because my dad the documentaries he made was about uh, the mining industry actually so he spent a lot of time with mining communities uh, during his working life so he had a lot of sympathy and connection and solidarity for those working class communities that were fucked over by the Tories right mm. um, so the so the thing about northerners though is that everyone assumes that you're working class yeah. regardless of your class yeah. so I'm going to ask you what class do you consider yourself to be just to just to Stereotypically, I am working class. Right, um, and you and you and you identify that way. I right? do now. Right, I do now. Um, for a long time, I didn't think about it. When I was a child, again, um, class was quite a big issue. And then when I got older, it it disappeared from my life completely. You know, it wasn't relevant to me at all. Um, and in the last sort of ten years or so, I'm quite proud to identify as working class. Right. Um, and I especially think, you know, if you're out on stage doing something or you're doing something that goes really well, it's good the people who do identify as working class are seen to be successful. Right. You know? um, I think there's a temptation a lot of the time where once somebody comes becomes successful, they're oh, I'm middle class now because I'm going to live here and I'm going to buy these things um, and my status has changed. Right. Where, so I think, you know, kind of stick to your roots a bit. Remember where you came from, you know. Uh, and I would rather people promoted the fact they'd done well being that than calling themselves something different right. after they'd made it, you know. Well, when we talk about diversity in the arts as well, like the, the thing that I think, I mean, obviously there's importance to have diversity in all areas, right? I'm not saying that any any group shouldn't be represented. It's terrible that we have just people like me doing all of the uh, doing all of the art. Like they're all, you know, straight white men, uh, middle class straight <laughs> white men, right? Um, so that's annoying. But I think that the, the kind of unseen diversity like drain that we've got is class like mm. like often people who are artists whatever like whether that you know they can be lgbt they can be uh, people of color but they but they but they're often like got some money because that's the only bloody way you can kind of get into the arts is if you have yeah. have the opportunity to fail for years um that's the thing right um and it's harder to fail if you can't afford to fail thing is i i'm i'm still in a position where i I'm very fin financially, I'm still very much working class as well. Right. Um, and like you were saying about your parents, you know, the money's good sometimes, you know, better sometimes than others. And I'll have times where it's great and times where there's literally nothing. Yeah, I mean, um, I'm very hard up at the moment. Yeah. If anybody wants to donate, <laughs> they can donate on any of my websites. Um, but I, it's never stopped me doing anything, really. Right. Never, money has never stopped me doing anything. If I want to do it, I do it. And I do this rather than a proper job, as it were, knowing that I'm going to be skint doing this. Right. Uh, I'm quite happy just living with next to now. Uh, much happier with that than I would be working in a 30, 40 grand a year job that I, I you know, just wasn't this. Right. <laughs> so I, I think I've made that choice. And you can call it a sacrifice or, or whatever, but I, I consider it a choice right. that I've chosen this lifestyle, which kind of goes with that. And how do you feel about the way that the media like presents northern working class experience? Uh, I, t I tend to avoid it right. quite a lot. I mean, I'm aware of programs like Benefit Street right. and that sort of thing existing, but obviously I, w I wouldn't watch those things. Um, so, I mean, I, I get a feeling I know how they're represented right. um, but, but I mean I guess even if you don't like it, 
watch the media, you go through life and people have interactions with you and they make assumptions yeah. about you, right? I don't, it's... He says making an assumption <laughs> about you. Um, it's a weird one because I, I think the people who choose to be involved in those things when it's the media right. aren't doing themselves any favours by, you know... But they're getting paid. So, like, that's an understandable yeah. decision to make if yeah. you haven't got any money. I mean, that's how I sort yeah. of think of it. I haven't got very much money. If somebody was to offer me, you know, an opportunity to be on a, a reality TV show, I probably would say yes. Um, and then they'd probably fuck me over in the edit just yeah. like everybody else. Well, exactly. Gets, I, th you know? I think in a programme like that or in, in the press, they've already decided what image they're going to portray. They've already decided that and they're just going to edit whatever they get yeah. until it fits the picture they've already decided on. Um, and it's it doesn't really exist as that thing. Yeah. You know, they've just manufactured an idea. Um, and yeah, there, there are people who behave in certain ways and there are people who, you know, have, have nothing and... But it doesn't automatically mean they're going to behave in this Absolutely. stereotypical way that they've decided. Um, well, I found like such case. great love and such great like support from the families of like, friends when I, I had a quite a tough childhood in lots of ways, mm. like at home as well as at school. And the, the the safe places that I found eventually were in, you know, people who would be dismissed. Like it aggravates me every time I see a front page of any fucking tabloid newspaper, like having a go at the very people who saved my life. You know, mm. it's, it's, it's frustrating because this idea that, um, there's this idea that like, yeah, like you say, that, that everybody is one way or everybody is another way, but, but it's not true. There, there are no. there are wankers in all classes, and yeah. uh, it's 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 different because some people have got less excuse for being wankers. I mean, that's the yeah. thing I think. It's like if you've got loads of money, if you've got loads of opportunity, and you're a wanker, that ain't that ain't on. But if you're struggling, you've got nothing. Fine. I mean, I understand why you might be a wanker to someone. Do you know what I mean? I, I find in the northeast as well, and I'm sh I'm sure it's the same uh, across. Uh, many areas that have large working class communities is uh, that those people, even when they have an extra now, will often be very generous with it. Absolutely. Um, and I think that comes from knowing what it is to be in that position. Um, and if they see somebody with even less, they're more than happy. I, I mean, like I know loads of very working class families who are signed up to several charities a month, you right. know, and that sort of thing. Um, so, again not having doesn't necessarily stop you doing. Yeah, well I think another, another thing about class I think is in, in terms of North and the South is that one of the things about that divide, right, mm. in inverted commas that people like to create is that it kind of ignores a lot of stuff. So when, when, when we all get annoyed, and we rightly do, with how London-centric the media is, that kind of disguises the fact that London has loads of working class communities. Oh, yeah. And those yeah. working class communities have more in common with the Newcastle working class yeah. communities than they do with the fucking bankers walking past their windows every mm -hmm. day. Um, and, and, and creating this north-south divide is kind of a way of saying, you working class people down here and you working class people up there, don't, don't start acting together. Don't start working together to change things because, you know, you're, you're different from each other. You should hate each other. Just like mm -hmm. we do with, with, with migrants, right? Like with, with, with anybody different. We go, yeah. like, hate them. Hate them, hate yeah. them, hate them, and then you know we don't, you know, uh, have a revolution, which you know, well, that's hard to instigate. That's why the whole division <laughs> exists, isn't it? Because if we all realised that we liked each other and we were allowed to do that, we could all topple the establishment that tries to stop us. Yeah, and I guess like going back to the idea of like 
having an open mic. Mm. Like that in itself is quite a radical thing in that way. Like giving people a, an opportunity to have a voice, to speak their thoughts. Like so, so many people in this world are like stuck in their own heads. Mm -hmm. Just the opportunity to just get up and speak. Yeah. Uh, some people won't have that opportunity. It must be amazing to see, you know. It really is. And uh, it's amazing to see people getting up for the first time as well, you know. Um, people who've just like been writing away in their bedrooms for ages and are finally bringing it out to show to somebody for the first time. It's great. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. I, I find that as well. Like, I find that like my true storytelling open mic that it's just so amazing to see like somebody who's not spoke like or like well, what I always say about my true storytelling open mic is every month uh, a woman who drives vans comes and tells a story about driving vans like every month and like everybody <laughs> has to listen to her like it does and she's you know she's good at telling stories i'm not saying she isn't but even if she was shit i wouldn't care because everybody in the room has to live listen to a a, a a woman who's working class and drives vans and is obsessed with cars like her stories are like very much about cars i don't know anything about cars she's Me like either. spouting all of these numbers and stuff and that's her passion and no one listens to her and that is my alarm telling me that i have around about now to do my last question. So Ooh. look how professional I am. I, I, I don't want to look at the time, so I set an alarm. Check you out. Uh, yeah. So, so yeah, it's been a real pleasure getting better acquainted with you in a room with just two people. I mean, there was, there was a brief moment when there was more, uh, but then they left, uh, which I don't think like the people listening at home will just think those people who left are idiots. Uh, because this is going to yeah. be an amazing podcast for them to listen to while they're doing their, you know, housework or walking <laughs> or going on their commute. Um, but yeah, the last question that I ask people is, do you have anything to plug? I do, yes. You do indeed. Um, so while I'm in Edinburgh, um, 11.05 every evening. I don't know why I said it like that. Five past 11 right. every <laughs> night. <laughs> in this very room in the Banshee Labyrinth Banqueting Hall, uh, we have Jibber Jabber. Uh, so that's every night except Thursdays till the end of the Fringe. Um, with different guests on every single night, plus the open mic. Um, and my solo show, my first ever solo show, is from the 22nd to the 29th at Clark's Bar. Wow. Yeah. What's your solo show? It's called Worky Ticket, um, which is a Geordie phrase, um, and which basically means a cheeky bugger. <laughs> um, somebody who gets away with murder. Um, and it's all about um, struggling in an adult world when all you want to do is be a child or a tiger. Wow, a tiger. So, yeah. So you want to be a tiger? Oh, I want to be a tiger. Okay. Yeah, well, yeah. Like, why do you want to be a tiger? Well, I d I've, I've just got an absolute love of tigers. Um, and something just... They don't care. They just... <laughs> it's just that devil-may-care attitude of the tiger. You know, if a tiger isn't hungry, it'll still just go and bloody kill that deer. It doesn't care whether it's hungry or not, you know. Um... And it, it, I don't know, I like the spontaneity of them. I like the beauty of them. I like that they're, I don't like that there's not many of them left, but I like the fact that, you know, there's these few surviving and keeping going. Um, I just everything about them, really. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm probably more house cat-like myself <laughs> in my own traits. Um, I'm probably better at sleeping and cuddles and finding somewhere warm to go um, and stealing food from places without uh, giving anything in return. <laughs> uh, you know, everything on my terms, I'll just go where, where 
I'm going to get fed, basically. Uh, so, yeah, mowing coming with a house cat, but aspirations of being a tiger. Well, I mean, tiger-related fact, I found out the other day that there's, like, hybrids between lions and tigers. There's, like, four. Yes. There's, like, you can, yes. you've got lions, you've got tigers, you've got, like, ligers That's and right, another yeah. one. And they look amazing. The hybrids look amazing. So check them out on the, on the internet. While we're doing plugging, I, my show, Stand Up Tragedy, is here in the Banshee Labyrinth at 7.30 every day, apart from Tuesdays when it's Getting Better Acquainted. There's two more Getting Better Acquainted happening in the festival. Uh, so next Tuesday, I'll be doing a conversation with Samantha Mann. So that's uh, cool. going to be an excellent uh, conversation. And then uh, the Tuesday after that, it is with Keith Jarrett, who's another yeah. uh, spoken word legend. Uh, oh, I just called you both legends. You'll both feel weird about that, but he's not here, so <laughs> only one of he, gets to be he is though he is a legend he is a legend um, and we're doing lots of special editions Jenny's last night was one of them but there's lots of other guest hosts in fact Samantha Man will be doing next Monday and um, we've got loads of other things after that I'm doing my one man show with my uh, purple fedora and my dress uh, what about the men mansplaining masculinity that's all until that's every day apart from Mondays that I'm taking off at 12.05 at uh, Cabaret Voltaire and it is not a comedy <laughs> not a comedy it's been billed a little bit as a comedy and that's kind of the only way that's what that's the way i'm flyering for it this is not a comedy <laughs> uh you might you might not want to come to this here you go um so yeah but you should check that out and there's more about that at www.mansplainingmasculinity.co.uk where can they find you online the listeners Oh, they can find me on Facebook. Uh, just find Jenny Pasco on Facebook, and there's a Jibber Jabber group and a Jibber Jabber page on there as well. Um, and uh, Twitter is underscore Jibber Jabber uh, or JJ underscore Pasco. Right, it's always annoying when someone's got in first, and it? it's like stand-up tragedy. We have to be stand-up for tragedy yes. because somebody got in first. Like you know, and then when when you look at it as well, they're always they're always just like naff things that we've no like, they're not even doing it they like started like years ago and they just took the good names and then they didn't do anything with them you know jj pasco actually went two hours uh, sorry jen uh jj pasco without the underscore right went two hours before i got mine oh yeah so close <laughs> so close just I'm, I'm impressed it. that you found that out as well um so yeah, the last thing that I ask my guests to do is to say goodbye to the audience. Now you've got two audiences here, so you can decide which one, I guess, to tell, or maybe both, to which ones. Bye, John and David. <laughs> <laughs> right, and I guess we'll say goodbye to the, well, I was gonna say, to, would the audience like to say goodbye to the audience? Let's get really meta. <laughs> goodbye to each other I meant the ones at home but uh, listeners at home today we don't care about you we only care about the people in the room so you're not even getting a goodbye uh, goodbye to the audience at home <laughs> goodbye everybody thanks for listening <laughs>